Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. Chapter 1 Dreams. The man, for the first time, stood face to face with life, and for the first time knew that he was a man. For a long time he had known that some day he would be a man, but he had always thought of his manhood as a matter of years. He had said to himself, When I am twenty-one, I will be a man. He did not know, then, that twenty-one years, that indeed three times twenty-one years, cannot make a man. He did not know, then, that men are made of other things than years. I cannot tell you the man's name, nor the names of his parents, nor his exact age, nor just where he lived, nor any of those things. For my story, such things are of no importance whatever. But this is of the greatest importance, as the man, for the first time, stood face to face with life, and for the first time realized his manhood. His manhood life began in dreams. It is the dreams of life that, at the beginning of life, matter. Of the thirteen truly great things of life, dreams are first. It was green fruit time. From the cherry tree that grew in the upper corner of the garden next door, closed by the hedge that separated the two places, the blossoms were gone and the tiny cherries were already well formed. The nest that a pair of little brown birds had made that spring in the hedge was just empty, and from the green-laden branches of the tree the little brown mother was calling anxious advice and sweet worried counsel to her sons and daughters who were trying their new wings. In the cemetery on the hill, Beside a grave over which the sod had formed thick and firm, there was now another grave, another grave so new that on it no blade of grass had started, so new that the yellow earth in the long rounded mound was still moist, and the flowers that tried with such loving, tender courage to hide its nakedness were not yet wilted. Cut in the block of white marble that marked the grass-grown grave were the dearest words in any tongue, wife and mother while, for the new-made mound that lay so close beside, the workmen were carving on a companion stone the companion words. There were two other smaller graves nearby, one of them quite small. But they did not seem to matter so much to the tall young fellow who had said to himself so many times, When I am twenty-one, I will be a man. It was the two graves marked by the companion words that mattered. And certainly he did not, at that time, feel himself a man. As he left the cemetery to go home with an old neighbor and friend of the family, he felt himself rather a small and lonely boy in a very big and empty world. But there had been many things to do in those next few days, with no one but himself to do them. There had been, in the voices of his friends, a note that was new. In the manner of the men who had come to talk with him on matters of business, he had felt a something that he had never felt before and he had seen the auctioneer, a lifelong friend of his father, standing on the front porch of his boyhood home, and had heard him cry the low-spoken bids, and answer the nodding heads of the buyers, in a voice that was hoarse, with something more than long speaking in the open air. And then, and then at last had come the sharp blow of the hammer on the porch railing, and from the trembling lips of the old auctioneer the word, Sold. It was as though that hammer had fallen on the naked heart of the boy. 
It was as though the auctioneer had shouted, Dead. And so the time had come a week later, when he must go for a last look at the home that was his no longer. Very slowly he had walked about the yard, pausing a little before each tree and bush and plant, putting forth his hand at times, to touch them softly as though he would make sure that they were there, for he saw them dimly through a mist. The place was strangely hushed and still. The birds and bees and even the butterflies seemed to have gone somewhere far away. Very slowly he had gone up the steps to open the front door. Very slowly he had passed from room to room in the empty, silent house. On the kitchen porch he had paused again, for a little, because he could not see the steps. Then had gone on to the well, the garden, the wood-house, the shop, the barn, and so out into the orchard that shaded the gently rising slope of the hill beyond the house. At the farther side of the orchard, on the brow of the hill, he had climbed the rail fence, and had seated himself on the ground, where he could look out and away over the familiar meadows and fields and pastures. A bobolink, swinging on a nearby bush, poured forth a tumbling torrent of silvering melody. Behind him on the fence, a meadowlark answered with liquid music. About him on every side, in the soft sunlight, the bluebirds were flitting here and there, twittering cheerily the while over their bluebird tasks. And a woodpecker, hard at work in the orchard shade, made himself known by the din of his industry. But the man, who did not yet quite realize that he was a man, gave no heed to these busy companions of his boyhood. To him... It was as though those men with their shovels had heaped that mound of naked yellow earth upon his heart. The world, for him, was as empty as the old house down there under the orchard hill. For a long time he sat very still, seeing nothing, hearing nothing, heeding nothing, conscious only of that dull, aching loneliness, conscious only of that heavy weight of pain. A mile or more away, beyond the fields, a moving column of smoke from a locomotive lifted itself into the sky above the treetops and streamed back a long, dark banner. As the column of smoke moved steadily on toward the distant horizon, the young man on the hilltop watched it listlessly. Then, as his mind outran the train to the cities that lay beyond the line of the sky, his eyes cleared, his countenance brightened, his thoughts went outward toward the great world where great men toil mightily and the long, dark banner of smoke that hung above the moving train became to him as a flag of battle leading swiftly toward the front. Eagerly now he watched, watched until, far away, the streaming column of smoke passed from sight around a wooded hill and faint and clear through the still air. A bugle call to his ears came the long, challenging whistle. Then it was that he realized his manhood, knew that he was a man, and understood that manhood is not a matter of only twenty-one years. And then it was, as he sat there alone on the brow of the little hill with his boyhood years dead behind him and the years of his manhood before, that his manhood life began, even as the manhood life of every man really begins, with his dreams. Indeed, it is true that all life really begins in dreams. Surely the lover dreams of his mistress, the maiden of her mate. Surely mothers dream of the little ones that sleep under their hearts, and fathers plan for their children before they hold them in their arms. Every work of man is first conceived in the worker's soul, and wrought out first in his dreams. 
and the wondrous world itself, with its myriad forms of life, with its grandeur, its beauty and its loveliness, the stars and the heavenly bodies of light that crown the universe, the marching of the days from the infinite to the infinite, the procession of the years from eternity to eternity. All this, indeed, is but God's good dream. In the hope of immortality, of that better life that lies beyond the horizon of our years, what a vision is that! What a wondrous dream! Given us by God to inspire, to guide, to comfort, to hold us true. With wide eyes the man looked out upon a wide world, somewhat as a conquering emperor, confident in his armed strength, might from a hilltop look out over the scene of a coming battle. He did not see the grinding hardships, the desperate struggles, the disastrous losses, the pitiful suffering. The dreadful dangers did not grip his heart. The horrid fear of defeat did not strike his soul. He did not know the dragging weight of responsibility, nor the dead weariness of a losing fight. He saw only the deeds of mighty valor, the glorious exhibitions of courage, of heroism, of strength. He felt only the thrill of victories, the pride of honors and renown. He knew only the inspiration of a high purpose. He heard only the call to greatness. And it was well that in his dreams there were only these. The splendid strength of young manhood stirred mightily in his limbs. The rich red blood of youth moved swiftly in his veins. His eager spirit shouted aloud in exultation of the deeds that he would do. And surely it was no shame to him at this moment, when for the first time he realized his manhood. This man, in his secret heart, felt himself to be a leader of men, a conqueror of men, a savior of men. It was no shame to him that he felt the salvation of the world depending upon him. And he was right. Upon him, and upon such as he, the salvation of the world does depend. But it is well indeed that these unrecognized, dreaming saviors of the world do not know, as they dream that their crosses, even then, are being prepared for them. It is their salvation that they do not know. It is the salvation of the world that they do not know. And then, as one from the deck of a ship bound for foreign land looks back upon his native shore when the vessel puts out from the harbor, this man turned from his years that were to come to his years that were past, and from dreaming of his future slipped back into the dreams of his yesterdays. Perhaps it was the song of the bobolink that did it, or it may have been the music of the meadowlark, or perhaps it was the bluebird's cheerful notes, or the woodpecker's loud tattoo. Whatever it was that brought it about, the man dreamed again the dreams of his boyhood, dreamed them even as he dreamed the dreams of his manhood. And there was no one to tell him that, in dreaming, his boyhood and his manhood were the same. Once again a boy, on a drowsy summer afternoon, he lay in the shade of the orchard trees, or in the big barn, sought the mow of new-mown hay, and with half-closed eyes slipped away from the world that droned and hummed and buzzed so lazily about him into another and better world of stirring adventure and brave deeds. Once again, when the sun was hidden under heavy skies and a steady pouring rain shut him in, through the dusk of the attic he escaped from the narrow restrictions of the house and, from his gloomy prison, went out into a fairyland of romance, of knighthood, and of chivalry. Again it was winter time, and the world was buried deep under white drifts, with all its brightness and beauty of meadow and forest hidden by the cold mantle, and all its music of running brooks and singing birds hushed by an icy hand 
when, snug and warm under blankets and comforters, after an evening of stories, he slipped away into the wonderland of dreams. Not the irresponsible sleeping dreams. Those do not count. But the dreams that come between waking and sleeping, wherein a boy dare do all the great deeds he ever read about, and can be all the things that ever were put in books for boys to wish they were. Oh, but those were brave dreams, those dreams of his yesterdays. No cruel necessity of life hedged them in. No wall of the practical or possible set a limit upon them. No right or wrong decreed the way they should go. In his yesterdays, they were fairy godmothers to endow him with unlimited power and to grant all his wishes, even unto mountains of golden wealth and vast caverns filled with all manners of precious gems. In his yesterdays, there were wicked giants and horrid dragons and evil beasts to kill, with always a good genie to see that they did not harm him the while he bravely took their baleful lives. In his yesterdays, he was a prince in gorgeous raiment, an emperor with jeweled scepter and golden crown, a knight in armor with a sword and proudly stepping horse of war. He was a soldier leading a forlorn hope, or a general with his plumed staff officers about him, directing the battle from a mountaintop. He was a sailor cast away on a desert island, or a captain commanding his ship in a storm, or, clinging to the shrouds in a smother of battle flame and smoke, shouting his orders through a trumpet to his gallant crew. He was a pirate, a robber chief, a red Indian, a hunter, a scout of the plains. He could be anything, in those dreams of his yesterdays, anything. So, even as the man, the boy had dreamed. But the man did not think of it in that way. The dreams of his manhood were too real. Then in his yesterdays would come, also, the putting of his dreams into action. For the play of children, even as the works of men, are only dreams in action after all. The quiet orchard became a vast and pathless forest, wherein lurked wild beasts and savage men ready to pounce upon the daring hunter. Or perhaps it was an enchanted wood with lords and ladies imprisoned in the trees, while in the carriage-house, which was not a carriage-house at all but a great castle, a cruel giant held captive their beautiful princess. The hamo was a robber's cave, wherein great wealth of booty was stored, the garden, a desert island on which lived the poor castaway. And many a long summer hour the bold captain clung to the rigging of his favorite apple-tree ship, and gazed out over the waving meadow sea, or the general of the army, on his rail-fence war-horse, directed the battle from the hilltop, or led the desperate charge. But rarely, in his yesterdays, could the boy put his dreams into successful action alone. Alone he could dream, but to realize his dreams, he needs must have the help of another. And so she came to take her place in his life, to help him play out his dreams. The little girl who lived next door. Who is she? Why, she was the beautiful princess held captive by the giant in his carriage-house castle, until rescued by the brave prince who came to her through the enchanted wood. She was the crew of the apple-tree ship, the robber band, the army following her general in his victorious charge, and the relief expedition that found the castaway on his desert island. Sometimes she was even a cannibal chief, or a monster dragon, or a cruel wild beast. And always, though the boy did not know, she was a good fairy weaving many spells for his happiness. The man remembered well enough the first time that he met her. A new family was moving into the house that stood just below the garden, and from his seat on the gatepost, the boy was watching the big wagons, loaded with household goods, as they turned into the neighboring yard. 
On the high seat of one of the wagons was a little girl. A big man lifted her down, and the boy, watching, saw her run gaily into the house. For some time he held his place, swinging his bare legs impatiently, but he did not see the little girl come out into the yard again. Then, dropping to the ground, the boy slipped along the garden fence under the currant bushes to a small opening in the hedge that separated the two places. Very cautiously, at first, he peered through the branches. Then, upon finding all quiet, he grew bolder, and on hands and knees crept part way through the little green tunnel to find himself, all suddenly, face to face with her. That was the beginning. The end had come several years later when the family had moved again. The parting, too, he remembered well enough. A boy and girl parting it was. And the promises, boy and girl promises they were. At first, many poorly written, awkwardly expressed, laboriously compiled, but warmly interesting letters were exchanged. Then the letters became shorter and shorter. The intervals between grew longer and longer, until, even as childhood itself goes, she had slipped out of his life. Even as the brave dreams of his boyhood she had gone, even as his yesterdays. The bobo link had long ago left his swinging bush. The meadow lark was gone to find his mate in a distant field. The twittering bluebirds had finished their tasks. The woodpecker had ceased from his labor. The sunshine was failing fast. Faint and far away, through the still twilight air, came the long, clear whistle of another train that was following swiftly the iron ways to the world of men. The man on the hill came back from his yesterdays, came back to wonder, where is the little girl now? Has she changed much? Her eyes would be the same in her hair, only a little darker, perhaps. And does she ever go back into the yesterdays? It is not likely, he thought. No doubt she is far too busy caring for her children and attending to her household duties to think of her childhood days and her childhood playmate. And what would her husband be like? He wondered. There was no woman in the dreams of the man who that afternoon, for the first time, realized his manhood and began his manhood life. He dreamed only of the deeds that he would do, of the work he would accomplish, of the place he would win, and of the honors he would receive. The little girl lived for him only in his yesterdays. She did not belong to his manhood years. She had no place in his manhood dreams. Slowly he climbed the rail fence again, and through the orchard, went down the hill toward the house. But he did not again enter the house. He went on past the kitchen porch to the garden gate where he stood, for some minutes, looking toward the hedge that separated the two places, and toward the cherry tree that grew in the corner of the garden next door. At the big front gate he paused again and turned lingeringly, as one reluctant to go. The old home in the twilight seemed so lonely, so deserted by all to whom it had been most kind. At last, with the movement suggestive of a determination that could not have belonged to his boyhood, he set his face toward the world. Down the little hill in the dusk of the evening he went, walking quickly, past the house where the little girl had lived, across the creek at the foot of the hill, and on up the easy rise beyond. And as he went, there was on his face the look of a man. There was in his eyes a new light, the light of a man's dreams. Nor did he once look back. Tomorrow he would leave the friends of his boyhood. He would leave the scenes of his yesterdays. 
he would go to work out his dreams. Even as in his yesterdays, he would play them out. For the works of men are as the plays of children but dreams in action, after all. Would he, could he, play out his manhood dreams alone? And the woman also, for the first time, was face to face with life, and, for the first time, knew that she was a woman. For a long while she had seen her womanhood approaching. Little by little, as her skirts had been lengthened, as her dolls had been put away, as her hair had been put up, she had seen her womanhood drawing near. But she had always said to herself, When I do not play with dolls, when I can dress like mother and fix my hair like mother, I will be a woman. She did not know, then, that womanhood is a matter of things very different from these. Until that night she did not know. But that night she knew. I cannot tell you the woman's name, nor where she lived, nor any of those things that are commonly told about women in stories. But, as my story is not that kind of a story, it will not matter that I cannot tell. What really matters to my story is this. The woman, that night, when for the first time she knew herself to be a woman, began her woman life in dreams. Because the dreams of life are of the greatest importance. Because dreams are of the thirteen truly great things of life. This is my story. That the woman life of this woman, when first she knew herself to be a woman, began in dreams. It was the time of the first roses, for a week or more she had been very busy with a loving, tender, joyous occupation that left her no time to think of herself. Her dearest friend, her girlhood's most intimate companion, and save for herself, the last of their little circle, was to be married, and she was to be bridesmaid. They had been glad days, those days of preparation, for she rejoiced greatly in the happiness of her friend, and had shared, as fully as it was possible for another to share, the sweet sacredness, the holy mysteriousness, and the proud triumph of it all. But with the gladness of those days, there had come into her heart a strange quietness like the quietness of an empty room that is furnished and ready, but without a tenant. At the wedding that evening she had been all that a bridesmaid should be, even to the last white ribbon and the last handful of rice, for she would that no shadow of a cloud should come over the happiness of her friend. But when the new-made husband and wife had been put safely aboard the Pullman, and with the group on the depot platform frantically waving hats and handkerchiefs, and shouting good lucks and farewells, the train had pulled away, the loneliness in her heart had become too great to hide. Her escort had made smart jokes about her tears, alleging disappointment and envy. He was a poor, shallow, witless fool, who could not understand, and that he could not understand mattered to her, not at all. She had commanded him to take her home, and at her front door had thanked him and sent him away. And then it was, in the blessed privacy of her own room, with the door locked and the shades drawn close, with her wedding finery thrown aside and the need of self-repression no longer imperative, that, as she sat in a low chair before the fire, she looked, for the first time, boldly at life, and for the first time knew that she was a woman, knew that womanhood was not a matter of long skirts, of hair-dressing, and the putting away of dolls. She was tired, very tired, from the responsibilities and excitement of the day, 
but she did not feel that she could sleep. From the fire, she looked up to the clock that ticked away so industriously on the mantel. It was a little clock, with the fat, golden Cupid, grasping the dial in his chubby arms, as though striving to do away with time, when he might better have been busy with his bow and arrows. The hands of the clock pointed nearly midnight. The young woman looked into the fire again. Already her girlfriend had been a wife several hours. A wife. Already the train was miles away, bearing the newly wedded ones to their future home. Their home. The years would go swiftly into days, the days into weeks and months and years, and there would be boys and girls, their children. And the years would go swiftly as the days, and there would be the weddings of their sons and daughters, and then the children of their children. And the woman who that night knew that she was a woman, the woman whose heart, as she sat alone before the fire, was even as an empty room, a room that is furnished and ready, but without a tenant. What, this woman asked herself, would the years bring her? The years of her childhood and girlhood were past. What of her womanhood years that were to come? There are many doors in the life of these modern days at which a woman may knock with hope of being admitted. And this woman, as she sat alone before her fire that night, paused before them all, all save two. Two doors she saw, but did not pause before, and one of them was idleness and pleasure. And one other door there is, that stands open so wide that there is no need to knock for admittance. Before this wide-open door the woman paused a long time. It is older than the other doors. It is very, very old. Since the beginning it has never been closed. But though it stood open so wide, and there was no need to knock for admittance, still the woman could not enter, for she was alone. No woman may enter that old, old open door alone. Three times before she had stood before that ancient door, and had been urged across the threshold. But always she had hesitated, had held back and turned away. She wondered if always she would hesitate, if always she would turn away, or would someone come with whom she could gladly, joyously, confidently cross the threshold. She could not say. She could only wait. And while she waited, she would knock at one of the other doors. She would knock because she must. The custom of the age, necessity, circumstances, forced her to knock at one of those doors that, in the life of these modern days, opens to women who seek admittance alone. I cannot tell just what the circumstances of the woman's life were, nor why it was necessary. Nor does it in the least matter that I cannot tell. The necessity, the circumstances, have nothing to do with my story save this, that, whatever they were, I am quite sure they ought not to have been. I am quite sure that any circumstance, or necessity, or custom, that forces a woman who knows herself to be a woman, to seek admittance at any one of these doors through which she must enter alone, is not right. This it is that belongs to my story. The woman did not wish to enter the life that lies on the other side of those doors through which she must go alone. Alone in her room that night, with the shades drawn close and the only light the light of the dancing fire, this woman who, for the first time, knew herself to be a woman, did not dream of a life on the other side of those doors at which she must ask admittance. 
She dreamed of a future beyond the old, old door that has stood open wide since the beginning. And it was no shame to her that she so dreamed. It was no shame that she called before her, one by one, those who had asked her to cross with them the threshold, and those who might still ask her. It was no shame that, while her heart said always, No, she still waited, waited for one whom she knew not, but only knew that she would know him when he came. And it was no shame to her that, even while this was so, she saw herself in the years to come a wife and mother. In the glowing heart of the fire she saw her home warm with holy love, bright with sacred companionship. Nor did she in her dreams fear the flickering shadows that came and went, for in the desk of the room she felt the dear presence of that one who was to be her other self, who was to be to her strength and her weakness, hope in her sadness, and comfort in her mourning. It is well indeed that the shadows of life bring no fears into our dreams, else we would not dare to dream, and life itself would lose its purpose and its meaning. So the woman saw her future, not in the shadows that came and went upon the wall, but in the glowing heart of the fire. And as she dreamed her dreams of womanhood, her face grew beautiful with a tender, thoughtful beauty that is given only to those women who dream such dreams. With the realization of her womanhood and the beginning of her woman life, her lips curved in a smile that was different from the smile of her girlhood, and there came into her eyes a light that was never there before. And then, as one setting out on a long journey might turn back for a last farewell view of love-familiar scenes, she turned to go back for a little, into her yesterdays. There was a home in those yesterdays, and there was a mother, a mother who lived now in a better home than any of earth's building. A father she had never known, but there was a big jolly uncle, who had done and was doing yet, all that an uncle of limited means could do, to take her father's place in the life of his sister's only child. And there was sunshine in her yesterdays, bright sunshine, unclouded by city smoke, and flowers unstained by city grime, and blue skies unmarred by city buildings. And there were beautiful trees and singing birds, and broad fields in her yesterdays. Also there were dreams, such dreams as only those who are very young, or very wise, dare to dream. It may have been the firelight that did it. It may have been the visions of her children, who lived only in the life that she saw beyond the old, old open door. Or perhaps it was the wedding finery that lay over a nearby chair, or the familiar tick, tick, tick of the clock in the arms of the fat Cupid, who neglected his bow and arrows in a vain attempt to do away with time. Whatever it was that brought it about, the woman dreamed again the dreams of childhood, dreamed them even as she dreamed those first dreams of her womanhood. And no one was there to tell her that the dreams of her girlhood and of her womanhood were the same. Again, on a long summer afternoon, as she kept house in a snug corner of the vine-shaded porch, she was really the mistress of a grand mansion that was furnished with beautiful carpets and furniture, china and silver, books and pictures. And in that mansion, she received her distinguished guest, and entertained her friends with charming grace and dignity, even as she set her tiny play-table with dishes of thimble-size, and served tea and cakes to her play-lady friends. Again, as she rocked her dollies to sleep beside the evening fire, and tucked them into their beds with a little mother kiss for each, there were dreams of merry boys and girls who should some day call her mother. 
and there were dreams of fine dresses and jewels the while she stitched tiny garments for her newest child, who had come to her with no clothing at all, or fashioned a marvelous hat for another, whose features were but a smudge of paint, and whose hair had been glued on so many times that it was far past combing, and a hat was a necessity to hide the tangled mat. And sometimes she was a princess shut up in a castle tower, and a noble prince, who wore golden armor and rode a great war-horse, would come to woo her, and she would ride away with him through the deep forest, followed by a long procession of lords and ladies, of knights and squires and pages. Or, perhaps, she would be a homeless girl in pitiful rags, who, because of her great beauty, would be stolen by gypsies and sold to a cruel king to be kept in a dungeon, until rescued by a brave soldier-lover. And in her yesterdays, the master of the dream-home over which she was mistress, the father of her dream-children, the prince with whom she rode away through the forest, the soldier-lover who rescued her from the dungeon, and the hero of many other adventures of which she was the heroine, was always the same. Outside her dreams he was a sturdy, brown-cheeked, bare-legged little boy who lived next door. But what a man is outside a woman's dreams counts for little, after all. Even though that woman be a very small and dainty woman, with a very large family of dolls. The woman remembered so well their first meeting. It was at the upper end of the garden near the strawberry beds, and he was creeping toward her on hands and knees through a hole in the hedge that separated the two places. How she had jumped when she first caught sight of him! How he had started and turned, as if to escape when he saw her watching him! How shyly they had approached each other with the first timid offerings of friendship! Many, many times after that did he come to her through the opening in the hedge. Many, many times did she go to him. And he came in many disguises. In many disguises she helped him put his dreams into action. But always, to her, he was a hero to be worshipped, a leader to be followed, a master to be obeyed. Always she was very proud of him, of his strength and courage, of the grand deeds he wrought, and of the great things that he would some day do. And sometimes, the most delightful times of all, at her wish he would help her, in his masterful way, to play out her dreams. And then, though he liked being an Indian or a robber or a soldier best, he would be a model husband and help her with the children. Although he did, at times, insist upon punishing them rather more than she thought necessary. But when the little family was ill with the measles or scarlet fever or whooping cough, no dream husband could have been more gentle, more thoughtful, or more wise in his attention. And once they had played a wedding. The woman whose heart was as an empty room stirred in her chair uneasily, as one who feels the gaze of a hidden observer. But the door was locked, the shades drawn close, and the only light was the flickering light of the fire. The night without was very dark and still. There was no sound in the sleeping house. No sound save the steady tick, tick, tick of the timepiece in the chubby arms of the fat Cupid on the mantel. And once they had played a wedding. It was when her big, jolly uncle was married. The boy and the girl were present at the ceremony, and she wore a wonderful new dress, while the boy, scrubbed and combed and brushed, was arrayed in his best clothes with shoes and stockings. There were flowers and music and good things to eat, and no end of laughter and gay excitement. And the jolly uncle looked so big and fine and solemn, and the bride, in her white veil, 
was so like a princess in one of the dreams, that the little girl was half frightened, and felt a queer lump in her throat as she clung to her mother's hand. And there was a strange ceremony in which the minister, in his gown, read out of a book and said a prayer and asked questions, and the uncle and the princess answered the questions, and the uncle put a ring on the finger of the princess, and the minister said that they were husband and wife. And then there were kisses while everybody laughed and cried and shook hands, and someone told the little girl that the princess was her new auntie, and her uncle caught her up in his big arms and was his own jolly self again. It was all very fine and strange and impressive to their childish eyes, and so, of course, the very next day, the boy and the girl played a wedding. It was up in that quiet corner of the garden, near the hedge, and the cherry tree was in bloom, and showered its delicate blossoms down upon them with every puff of air that stirred the branches, while in the hedge nearby, a little brown bird was putting the finishing touch to a new nest. The boy's shepherd dog, who sat up when you told him, was the minister, and all the dollies were there, dressed in their finest gowns. The little girl was very serious and again half frightened, felt that queer lump in her throat as she promised to be his wife. And the boy looked very serious, too, as he placed a little brass ring upon her finger, and speaking for the brown-eyed, shaggy-coated minister, said, I pronounce you husband and wife, and anything that God has done must never be done any different by anybody, forever and ever. Amen. And then, because there was no one else present, and they both felt that the play would not be complete without, then he had kissed her, and they were both very, very happy. So it was that, in the quiet secrecy of her dimly lighted room, the woman who that night knew herself to be a woman, felt her cheeks hot with blushes, and upon her hot cheeks felt her tears. So it was now that she came back from her yesterdays to wonder, where was the boy now? What kind of a man had he grown to be? Was he making his way to fame and wealth, or laboring in some humble position? Had he a home with wife and children? Did he ever go back into the yesterdays? Had he forgotten that wedding under the cherry tree, when the one with whom she would go through the old, old door into the life of her woman dreams should come, would it matter if the hero of her childhood dreams went in with them? He could be no rival to that one who was to come, for he lived only in the yesterdays, and the yesterdays could not come back. The fat little Cupid on the mantle neglected his bow and arrows in vain. He could not do away with time. Very slowly the woman prepared for her rest, and when she was ready, knelt in the soft dusk of her room, a virgin in white, to pray. And God, I know, understood why her prayer was confused and uncertain with longings she could not express even to him who said, Except ye become as little children. God, I know, understood why this woman, who that night, for the first time, knowing herself to be a woman, had dreamed a true woman's dream. God, I know, understood why, as she lay down to sleep in the quiet darkness. She stretched forth her empty arms and almost cried aloud. In tomorrow's light it would all be gone. But that night, that night, her womanhood dreams of the future were real. Real, even as the girlhood dreams of her yesterdays. End of chapter 1